0: Welcome back to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Joshua Molina.
1: And I'm Rishi K. Shirway. Today we're talking about A Simuave." Simoave. Nice. I think that's episode 16 of season five.
0: It was written by Alexa Young, directed by Llewellyn Wells, John's brother, and it first aired on March 3rd, 2004.
1: Huh.
0: I got another another year before this gets hairy again.
1: <laughs> you don't have to say February, but I have to say A Simuave." Simoave.
0: That's right, but you did it with great Elan.
1: Mm, we'll see. When we get our angry comments.
0: I mean, nothing like how Martin said it, but I'm giving you the win on that.
1: Let's hear how the president says it.
0: A hey, porsi miove. Okay. President mispronunciation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Here's the synopsis from NBC. The president explodes when a rival conservative congresswoman seeks to torpedo funding for a controversial medical study by the NIH by exposing the fact that Bartlett's daughter Ellie is working there as a scientist. Mm, That's not right. I don't think so. But, continued, meanwhile, as Toby searches for the internal White House leak that led to Ellie's press scrutiny, Josh works to convince an old college friend to stay the course for his blocked confirmation as a judge on the Sixth Circuit Federal Court. Elsewhere, the First Lady agrees to appear on an episode of Sesame Street with Elmo and Big Bird, despite some political concerns from CJ. Again, that's not quite right. It was CJ's idea. That's true.
0: Yeah. They're watching the show less closely than I, and that I find
1: disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) Let me switch over to the Warner Brothers synopsis just for comparison. Sure. Here, there's just no respect for the office. Bartlett becomes furious when a rival conservative congresswoman tries to end funding for a controversial NIH medical study by exposing the fact that Bartlett's daughter Ellie is working at the institute as a scientist. Again, that's not right. Not quite it. As Toby searches for the internal White House leak, blah blah blah. blah. <laughs> Josh, friend, contention, sixth circuit court, confirmation blocked. Meanwhile, CJ urges Abby to increase her public profile as the first lady and a working doctor. Correct.
0: Maybe it's time to return to the rhinopsis.
1: Yeah, I guess I might have to write these.
0: These are not quite doing it for me.
1: Part of CJ's plan includes educating children about medicine via a public service announcement with Abby and characters from the children's show Sesame Street, Big Bird, Elmo, Rosita, and Zoe.
0: Zoe? Oh, not Zoe Bartlett.
1: No, Zoe without a Y. What did you think of this episode, Josh? Well, it's a great Will episode, I think.
0: I'm willing to be convinced that it is. I'm not sure I understood my my storyline.
1: It's funny, this part of it didn't really get a mention in the synopsis, but...
0: Uh, the no mention of Will in any of these synopses. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed.
1: So, one first point of order, the synopses said that Ellie worked as a researcher at the NIH. She did not. She works at Johns Hopkins. That's where she's doing her postdoc. Right. Right?
0: Ergo, propter doc. (laughs) Have we ever have we ever gone this far off the tracks this early?
1: I'm sure, but... <laughs> Damn you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She's a postdoctoral fellow at Johns Hopkins, where she's studying HPV. And that is where the episode begins, in the lab of Dr. Louis Foy, when he receives this phone call, this very strange phone call that seems to be political in nature. And then he sends... An assistant to go get someone off screen and it turns out to be Ellie.
0: Yes, and I think a missed opportunity for that to be the bomb swell. There's a strange little almost coda to the cold open in which Toby and CJ kind of recap what we just saw. Strangely unnecessary, and then it just fizzles out with a bomb splat leading into the <laughs> opening theme. Missed opportunity. I, I felt like I don't know, I didn't get it. I don't know what the Toby CJ scene added. That we didn't have with the tension of the actual moment in the scene just previous, just
1: revealing that it's to it. that it's Ellie, right? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm still at least fifty percent of my brain is still occupied with postdoc ergo propter doc. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't believe I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> really? Yeah, but yeah. So then we we get to uh, CJ and Toby's office, and what is the actual line that we get? It's Toby saying, "Somebody's out for blood, and they're targeting Ellie Bartlett." Which, yeah, we may have, maybe we would have gotten there ourselves just by hearing the phone call.
0: First of all, I guess I risk repeating myself ad nauseum, but that's essentially what we've surmised from the previous scene. And if we didn't quite wrap our minds around it, so much the better. And we'll get there soon enough. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's the West Wing way normally.
1: Mm-hmm. And so we really get the heart of what this episode's going to be about that a story drops in our lap right away. Is this a matter of nepotism? Seems to be the real question. The idea of studying HPV in sex workers in Puerto Rico, which is the real substance of the study that Ellie's lab is working on, mm-hmm. is kind of a smokescreen. Really, it's about there was money, it was directed in this place where Ellie happens to work. Right.
0: Well, I I will admit that while I was interested and I like this storyline, I'm a little bit confused by various elements of this storyline, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It may just be a reflection on me. (laughs) Um, Scrutinizing where the money goes makes sense. You know, there's nothing on the surface wrong with that. I think we should be, we should know where our taxpayer money is going and where research money is going. So first my question is, are NIH grants confidential?
1: No, I think the very fact that they're paid for with taxpayer money means they can't be. If you go to the NIH website, nih.gov, you can look under the, they have a a tab that just says funding, and you can look up NIH awards by location and organization.
0: But isn't the central nugget of this storyline how the information got out?
1: I think that, no, the thing that got out is that Ellie Bartlett works at this lab. That part was private. Her name isn't on the lab. Her, you know, there's no real reason why someone would know that this is a place that might be vulnerable politically yeah. until they find out that, oh, the president's daughter's working here.
0: Right. Now, I get that. And this is going to be a huge thing for the president, because President Bartlett before he does a complete 180, which we'll talk about later, we know is absolutely furious that his daughter would be dragged into politics for any reason, given that she's just a doctor doing research work. And I, you know, I get that that part is confidential, but they keep talking about the list, the list, and that Will Bailey ultimately leaked the list. And where do they get the list? No, they found it from this guy. Like, I don't get the whole magilla about the list. And then, you know, Will Bailey refers to it as a potential career killer. Is it just the element that of Ellie's involvement
1: in this particular study? Here's what I think it is. It's not just a list of projects that are funded by the NIH. Barbara Layton says, We have a list of 255
0: projects supported by the Bartlett administration. CJ,
1: it's Toby. There was something about earmarks.
0: Right. Two billion earmarked for HIV AIDS research.
1: Yes. And the president says, this whole thing started because I I did that, because I earmarked $2 billion of the federal research budget. And by doing so, he has politicized things. And and from that $2 billion, that's what these 255 different research projects have come out of.
0: And they wanted to keep them secret? This is what I just don't get. It's the central sort of element of the episode. And often we will start these podcasts. I will have an extremely (laughs) stupid question. You'll answer it for me and we'll go, hey, should we start again? (laughs) And we do. So I'm waiting for you to explain to me. And then on t- to to further compound my confusion in the Layton scene, it's still he's about the list and where'd she get it and did she then we know we got it? You, you got it from Mac McCall's organization? No, I didn't.
1: Cherry Jones, by the way, who plays Barbara Layton, this is not her only political role. She would go on to play the president in 24. Mm-hmm. the first female president in that series. and uh, and although the character is a Republican in, the, in 24, she is based on Hillary Clinton. My favorite role, though, of hers is when she played Matt Damon's mom in Oceans 12.
0: Ah, I wasn't even aware of that.
1: Yeah, she's great in that one.
0: Uh, I saw her on stage in the John Patrick Shanley play Doubt, in which she was quite wonderful. Amazing performance.
1: Was that turned into a movie?
0: Indeed it was. And there was was, uh, some to-do among theater fans that uh, Meryl Streep got that role. Mm -hmm. Not that she's any theater slouch herself, but that Cherry Jones had made such an impression playing that role for a long time. A lot of people thought she should have been in the movie.
1: Are there songs in it?
0: There are no songs. You might like it. Mm,
1: Okay. So. (laughs) No doubt. In some ways, it's a musical by No Doubt. I beat you to it. I wasn't sure how to get there, but I knew it was coming. (laughs) I said it. (laughs) What's this movie about? (laughs) It's all about doubt. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Just stay tuned and you'll find out. (laughs) You know, you're good. (laughs) Same, you don't like musicals. Look out, Lynn. <laughs> and she also
0: says in that scene, I'm on the authorizing committee for that money. How does that work? If she's on the authorizing committee for that money, why would there be any surprise that she knows where the money went? She's on the authorizing committee. And if she has problems with it, why'd you authorize? <laughs> the whole thing left me shaking my head. Like, well, I'm really not, I always want the show to be a, co- it's nine steps ahead of me and I cannot figure out
1: I don't have a good answer for any of this stuff. I feel like this is bad research on my part that I don't actually know. But I think it, there
0: may be just like there's a bug in this episode. I feel like there may maybe there's something huge that
1: we're missing. Let me tell you a little bit about the NIH, okay? Please do. The NIH is responsible for shelling out $30 billion in research money. The money ultimately comes from Congress, but there's an extensive process to get those grants. I wanted to find out more, so I spoke to Dr. Mueller-Fabri. He's a pediatric cancer researcher looking specifically into neuroblastoma, which is the third most common form of cancer in children. He's been awarded $1.9 million in NIH funding to do his work, and so I asked him about that process. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Fabri. Will you introduce yourself and tell us more about the work that you're doing?
2: Yes, I'm uh, Muller Fabri, uh, MD, PhD. I am Associate Professor at the Cancer Biology Program of the University of Hawaii Cancer Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. Last year, I was awarded two big uh, NIH uh, grants. Uh, Technically, they're called R1s. Those are the grants that are used essentially to support uh, basic science and translational science. So that the main research type of grant mechanism that uh, the NIH has for scientists. So what I work on is um, cancer, of course, but from the perspective of tumor microenvironment. So without going too much into details, but my research focuses a little bit outside of the enemy, which is the cancer cell itself, but looks also at what happens in the immediate surrounding of the cancer cell. So in those that are supposed to be normal cells, and it turns out that they're not so normal, and they tend to basically respond and become something different upon the education that the cancer cells themselves do to these surrounding cells.
1: And what was the process like for you in terms of applying for the NIH grant?
2: It is uh, a long and thoughtful process. It requires a generation of a lot of preliminary data before it is even considered. And so once you have uh, an idea and you have strong preliminary data that support this idea, then you become competitive to apply for uh, an NIH grant really what everybody is after is actually this R1 mechanism, which is the main support for us as scientists and requires tons of preliminary data to mm. convince the review panel that uh, uh, this uh, grant is worth it to be supported.
1: And what is the review panel like? For your specific research, were you trying to convince people who understood what you were talking about, or were they lay people?
2: No. So um, the grant is evaluated by what called the study section, which is composed by uh, top tier scientists. So they're all scientists and uh, they have different type of expertise, but um, usually your grant is assigned to three or more of these, the members of the study section who are really expert in the field. And so basically your grant is evaluated by top tier peer reviewers. That is at least the spirit. Hmm.
1: How long did the process take to go from your initial application until you were awarded the the money?
2: It depends. So what happens is that the NIH for this type of grants has um, well-established yearly deadlines that are usually three a year. And so you have to apply within the deadline. At this point, let's say one of the deadline, for instance, is usually February 5th. So if you submit by that deadline, then your grant is reviewed in a study section when the study section meets in June. So already we have a little gap of months here. And then you get your feedback quite fast after the study section met. Basically, it's very difficult to get the grant funded and supported the first time. So at the first attempt. Huh. So what happens is that you receive the feedback from the scientists and then you have one chance to resubmit again, so in one of the other cycles. And then at that point, it depends on you. So it depends on what they asked you to do. So which type of experiments they want, which type of additional preliminary data they require. So it might take uh, a lot of time to be able to resubmit, or it might be a little bit of a, you know, not so involving uh, resubmission. And so you can just go at the next cycle. But generally speaking, best case scenario, I mean, if everything goes smooth, within one year from the original submission, you might be able to actually be supported, assuming that the first time you hardly ever get it. So you have a second chance. Now, uh, if you don't get the second chance, which is what happens also very frequently, because these are very competitive grants, then you have to start anew. So it's a pretty heavily involving process that sometimes, you know, can last a lot of years, really, you know, like I have friends uh, And myself, actually, when I got my first one supported, it took about, I would say, almost three years from the very original submission to the funding moment. And I have friends that have been even less lucky than I have been. So they are like in their eighth submission and they're still struggling.
1: It's interesting that you said lucky. Does it feel like a matter of luck in terms of getting the grant or does it really feel like the strongest research does get awarded?
2: No, I would say that uh, you need a little bit of both components, of course, because uh, like in everything in life, uh, also in this case, when you submit a grant, uh, you hope that the panel is composed by reviewers that are interested and involved in your type of research. Uh, it, it, this is not always the case, but it's inevitable. So, so in that in that sense, I said, said lucky. I mean, I cannot think of a perfect system, really, I couldn't suggest to you. But I would say that most of the time, if the study section is functional, so it means that, you know, there is a good chairperson, there is a very good uh, scientific review officer, which is the NIH appointed official that actually assigns the grants to the scientists of the panel, then, you know, you might actually have feedbacks that are very constructive and actually help you improve your uh, proposal or perhaps directed to directions that you didn't think about and the other scientists give you an orientation towards. So it can be actually quite constructive as a process. At the same time, it can be also very destructive. In a situation in which there is a lot of competition for funding, you might have some people in the panel that, you know, they have their little agenda sometimes and Mm -hmm. they don't or they simply don't believe in the type of science that is proposed. And so, you know, then they tend to direct the, the general sense and the general opinion of the study section towards not funding the, the project.
1: Hmm. Outside of the scientists on the study section, either before, during, or after you've gotten the money, did you ever have any dealings with elected officials, with politicians who might have some oversight over the NIH budget or anything like that?
2: Not at all. Not in my case. I don't know if others do that. That was not my experience. So the type of interaction that you have, is uh, which is part of the system and the mechanism, is with uh, your uh, program official, which is the highest figure in that type of study section. That is the one that really coordinates with you the type of science that you discusses with you, really the type of science that you you have in mind and you wanted to submit. So the program official is the person that might have a look at your specific aim page before you even submit the the study to the study section. They cannot tell you, of course, it's a great project, it will be funded or not, because this is not what they have to do. They just direct you to one study section or another, and then it's entirely up to the study section that the, to evaluate and assess the scientific merit of the application.
1: Mm. So there's a luck factor in that as well.
2: There is a luck factor in the sense that not all the program officers are as um, available as others. So you have to be lucky to be assigned to one of them that is really willing to help you. And then you have a different possible outcomes of the study section. So in some cases, unfortunately, the majority, your grant does not get discussed. So before the study section meets, and they provide and they give a preliminary score to the grant, and then you know bef- when the study section actually meets, they they rank all of the preliminary scores, and by law of the NIH, they have to discuss the top fifty percent, so the top half. Hmm. I mean, of course, if they can they can discuss all of them but this is not always possible and you know um and it's actually pointless because there is so little money available that uh, you know those that are in in the second half in the lower half of course they have no chance essentially to be funded so they're not even discussed and this is concerning because of course a lot of projects cannot be funded and a lot of labs have to close because of that
1: because there is such a diverse set of projects that are being submitted, studying such a vast range of diseases, do you ever feel like diseases are kind of pitted against each other, in a way, for a finite amount of money?
2: No because the system is set in, in a nice way in this sense. So the NIH has different institutes, as you know. And so the first thing uh, that happens when you submit an application, the NIH assigns it to an institute, which is the one that usually is related to the type of disease. Now, of course within the National Cancer Institutes the cancer I'm working on will compete in terms of funds with another type of cancer that is for sure Right Yeah but I have to say that uh, um, these are not I mean I don't have a sense that this is a problem in the sense that if the science is solid if the preliminary data Hold, and the hypothesis is, is really supported by strong preliminary evidence, chances are that your uh, project will be funded even if it is in, in a rare type of cancer.
1: Right. But that is one thing that the, the episode mentions and, and maybe does not really get right. Every dollar
0: you spend on studies of Puerto Rican sex workers is one that you take away from cancer centers and clinical
2: tests. You don't know that. But
1: the way that the NIH divvies up the funds between these different parts of the NIH means that that doesn't actually happen.
2: No, it doesn't happen because of what I said before, but of course the point here is subtle because it all depends on how much money is given by the government to the NIH. Then the NIH distributes within institutes, and I guess this distribution, I don't know how it happens, but I assume it's be, it's based also on the volume of the grant application they receive. Right. But the point is that, uh, of course, if you increase the support to the NIH uh, in general, then the will be less of this competition in a sense, in the sense that more people that study tropical diseases will have more of their grants funded. So there will be a lower number of grants studying tropical diseases or cancer that uh, are rejected or not discussed. But it's not because a cancer scientist will compete with a heart and lung disease. It's because there is more or less money overall, which is the main problem why, you know, the research is so competitive and it's so difficult to get these grants.
1: Right. And now the NIH budget has been cut down from 30 billion to uh, 26.
2: Yeah, this is a problem. This is a problem for two reasons. So the first one is that, uh, of course, there is less money. And the second off is that uh, this country which in my opinion is still the best one where you can do uh, research, is in danger. I mean, the danger is that it loses the primate, the first position, let's say, in terms of research in the world. Because there are other countries that are emerging, uh, especially Southeast Asia, some parts of Europe even, that are very competitive and they do excellent research. And if this country doesn't believe in science and in research so much, Uh, and keeps cutting the funding, uh, you will assist at a lot of scientists that have to close their labs here and simply move somewhere else in another country. I mean, Mm -hmm. I understand the concerns that a lot of the American people have um, and have, have expressed, especially in the past, for instance, of cancer research. A lot of them say, well, we've been funding cancer research for so many years. Where is the cure for cancer? Right. But, What they fail to understand because they're not properly educated, I think, even by the media is just because uh, nature always surprises you and Mm -hmm. cancer is a very smart disease. So we have an hypothesis that seems very logical and makes totally sense. And then you go and test it and then you find the results that are not what you expect. But now you have to understand why the answer you got is different than the one you expected. And that is what the real work of the researcher is. And that is when the beauty and also the challenge and a lot of frustration in this work comes, because you have to follow what the results are. You know, I'm Italian. Galileo Galilei said that uh, the experimental method is an interrogation of the book of nature. And this is, this is exactly what scientists have to do. So there is a book there that is the book of nature that has its rule, and every time we make an experiment, we interrogate this book. We try to read some of the pages, and we expect that there is something written in this book, and most of the time we find out that there is something else written. So then we have to have the support and the funding to be able to put the, the right pair of spectacles to actually be able to read what's written in there. If you cut the fund because you say, oh, you didn't read it yet, we don't go anywhere. We simply keep not reading the book properly. That's the problem.
1: Hmm. And you invoked Galileo, which is pretty incredible, because I have not told you that the name of this episode is si Muove, <laughs> of course.
2: Yes, yeah,
1: and, and uh, they talk about Galileo in the episode itself.
2: Yeah, yeah, makes
1: sense. I wanted to uh, just go back to one thing that you had said earlier, which was that you need a lot of preliminary data before you can even apply to the NIH, and sometimes even that's not enough and you have to do more before you can have them award your studies. And I wanted to just uh, mention how I'm familiar with your work to begin with, which was through the Pavlov Foundation. Could you tell us about how you came to work with the Pavlov Foundation before you got to the NIH?
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for this question, because I was going there. So as you pointed out properly, since you need strong preliminary data to even apply for an NIH grant, the question becomes, where do you get the money to ask for the money? (laughs) So we have to start somewhere. And fortunately, there are out there foundations, uh, private foundations, such as the Pablo Foundation, that take the risk that the NIH doesn't want to take. So they say, you know what, we have some money that we raised in different ways. And Pablo has has wonderful ways of raising money for their cause. And uh, they say, well, we want to set up a system to assess applications that are, you know, are like more, more of a high-risk, high-reward kind of idea. Mm-hmm. That they have, you know, some preliminary data, but not as extensively as an NIH application. And if uh, we believe in that project, then we support it in order to allow them to generate the data that allows them to apply for an NIH grant. So the Pablo Foundation, to answer your question, is a wonderful foundation. So I just saw online that they had a call for applications, and it was a project that, I mean, I had to write a project for that, and then they would assess with their own system of scientists, reviewers that evaluated the different applications they received, and they decided to fund my research. And this was incredibly important for me for two reasons. The first one is because it was the first support I ever got. For my research. And you know, when you start your own lab, the first thing you are worried about is to be able to convince other scientists that your work is worthy, Hmm. that it's cool research, it's cool stuff, so to speak. (laughs) And you know, and while the clock is ticking, because you have X amount of time to get NIH funding. And you know you don't have enough preliminary data to even apply for an age grant. You try to apply to these foundations. And once you receive an acceptance from them, I can guarantee it's one of the best days in your life (laughs) because it tells you, wow, I'm doing something that really others besides myself think that it's worth it to be funded. And that is when I met, uh, you know, the Pablo Foundation and uh, uh, Johan and Jeff are two wonderful persons and they did an amazing work in setting up the foundation and the system to support scientists uh, like me at the beginning, at the early stage of their career. And, and actually after that, too, because then they granted me what they called an accelerator award, which is in the next phase in their grant support system, which is something I'm still benefiting from because uh, I still supporting part of my research to generate the data for another one that I hope I'll be able to get uh, pretty soon.
1: Amazing. People can find out more about the Pavlov Foundation at Poblov.org. Dr. Fabri, where can people read more about what you're doing?
2: They can read in my page uh, at the University of Hawaii, or I think I think it's still up on my previous page at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So if they just Google my name, Muller Fabri, and they put CHLA, which is Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and now they put also UHCC, which is University of Hawaii Cancer Center, they have a sense of my trajectory. So what I have done before and what I'm planning to do now in this wonderful place.
1: Great. And we'll put some links up on our website as well. Dr. Fabri, thank you so much for, for speaking to me.
2: Thank you for this opportunity, because really, this is a fight that we fight together. You know, cancer is a very smart enemy. Humans suffer from several types of diseases. Research is the best and most powerful weapon we still have to understand things and to cure more and more people. But in this battle, we are not alone. We we are good from the technical perspective, but we need the support. And the support comes from taxpayers and comes from uh, you know donors that uh, give some of their money for the benefit of humanity.
1: Thank you so much. It was really such a pleasure.
2: Likewise. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much to Dr. Fabry. Okay, back to the episode. I want to go to the moment where Toby and Will finally have their confrontation. Toby says, Did you or did you not willfully target the president's daughter? Putting the pieces back together, we discover that where this all started is uh, with opposition research, or really self-opposition research, that Will did about Vice President Russell for his upcoming potential campaign for president. Yes, And in doing so, it was meant for his eyes only, but he was looking at ways that they might be targeted by their opponents. And in doing that, he came up with this, where the money is going, what kind of healthcare causes the Bartlett administration has supported, and you know, could the vice president get hurt by that? Somewhere in there, I guess, there was some note or something that said that this lab, Dr. Louis Foy's lab, is where Ellie Bartlett was doing her postdoc. And then that whole thing got to Vice President Russell, and that got to the Vice President's wife, and then that got to Barbara Layton. And then in the telephone game of all of that, the headline really became, it's all about Ellie, and look, all this money is going to fund, is basically going into the pockets to secretly enrich Ellie Bartlett and her uh, colleagues.
0: Yeah, I guess I get the Ellie of it all. It's almost, uh, in a sense, as if Will Bailey has doxed her and put out this... post job. <laughs> There we go. Prop your doxter. <laughs> I, I do get that element, and that's a slip up. I don't know if it's an enormous secret of state, but I would get that President Bartlett wouldn't want a light shine on the fact that his daughter works in a lab doing research that receives money from the federal government. But there's a lot of discussion in this episode about shining a light on. NIH grantees altogether and whether politicians should be doing that. You'd let the scientists do their thing, seems to be what President Bartlett and his team wants to say. And then there's this scene between Leighton and Toby, and I think she kind of shrugs off pretty quickly the Ellie of it all. She doesn't seem that interested in it. I don't have a problem with homosexuals or injection drug users. She comes across as very reasonable to me. Which, what she seems to be saying in that scene is, we just have to look where the money goes. And it's a zero-sum game, whether it's the $32 billion or it's $26 billion, It's a finite amount, and a dollar that goes uh, to HPV is a dollar that can't go to Alzheimer's. Everything she says is absolutely true. And then, although he pushes her on the whole question of where she got the list. She also says, I'm on the authorizing committee for that money. So that, that completely twirled my mind. So I don't know why she's out on the floor
1: as if it's new information to her.
0: Right, exactly. Look what I turned up. It turns yeah. out I authorized the following things <laughs> and I, I strongly object to them. So I found that confusing.
1: There's something that I think we're missing between the congressional committee that approves the money. Right,
0: and then what ultimately happens.
1: And the president's earmarking. Earmarking of $2 billion. Yeah, somehow, you know, because there's, 30 billion being appropriated through Congress, and then the president is somehow earmarking some portion of that for this kind of funding. And then that funding specifically is going to these 255 labs, of which Ellie works at one.
0: I feel like we need to have a brief conversation with somebody smarter than we are. (laughs) I'm just going to walk out on the street and stop the first person I (laughs) see.
1: You said that everything that Barbara Layton says is correct, but I would say... There is one thing that Toby pushes back on that I think he is correct about. She says, every dollar you spend on studies of Puerto Rican sex workers is one that you take away from cancer centers and clinical tests. And Toby says, you don't know that. You don't know where undirected research will lead. And Josh later makes the point that so many scientific discoveries were basically made by accident, while trying to do research for one thing, some other discovery comes up and the application of that discovery leads somewhere else.
0: I love that moment especially because you can just see in Brad's eyes uh, the importance of Rogaine (laughs) to the character. Um. Um, no, I, I don't know. If I said everything Leighton says is correct, that's not what I meant. I, just, I think she makes some very good points. I also do like the idea, I, I think there is some truth to trusting scientists and the average layperson's inability to predict, and the scientist maybe inability to predict exactly where research is going to go. I just think she makes a very good point. She's kind of built up, at least in my mind watching, to be probably somebody who's a real socially right-wing conservative yes crazy person who's going to come in and harangue against the uh, you know the fact that it's research on sex workers but she immediately cuts the legs out of that argument and right. she proves herself to be fairly logical and then they have a substantive conversation that I wasn't anticipating which I liked and made it I yeah. thought a, a, a great scene
1: I think that that switcheroo was really well done this feels like an echo of the pilot episode with Barbara Layton standing in for Mary Marsh. Mary Marsh, yeah. And the Traditional Values Alliance standing in for the Lambs of God, the um, extremist Christian group who was uh, mentioned in in that episode. It kind of sets you up being like, oh, here we go again. Toby has the moral high ground and we're ready for the idea that he's going to come in and kind of like, blaster the way that right. the president did at the end of um, of that first episode but then he doesn't the traditional values alliance by the way the organization that toby suspects has given barbara layton the list is surely a stand-in for the real life traditional values coalition a i guess you might say christian group but it's actually designated as a hate group by the southern poverty law center is that true yeah? yes oh Here's a great little tidbit that Nick Song, our research assistant, our Rina, dug up. The lordhateshomos.org, which uh, gets name checked by Toby in this, as a website that the uh, TVA owns, is an actual domain on the internet. And if you go there, it uh, redirects you to Warner Brothers. Is, is that, that true? It does. Well, that's really weird. The it says, this website is currently not available. Please check us out at these other Warner Brothers websites. That's really odd. So I'm guessing they registered it when they were making it. Oh, here, the, in fact...
0: You're sure that's not The Lord Hates Shamus? <laughs> that's how I read it. <laughs> I don't know what Shamus is, but...
1: Uh, this is good work. He says, the domain was registered on February 3rd, 2004, two months before this episode aired. Which means that, huh, for the last 14 years, Warner Brothers has been paying for a domain, the Lord hates thelordhateshomos.org. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Someone at Warner Brothers might want to delete that line item.
0: Perhaps, Perhaps maybe, yeah. <laughs> or I'll leak it.
1: <laughs> and of course, by the time we're, we finish the episode, we discover that he's wrong. Leighton didn't get the list from that group. And then you see how wonderfully Cherry Jones plays that part, you know, when she's genuinely surprised by the suggestion that that's where it came from. And so her denials are, are, are very real. And, you know, the idea that she says, oh, this guy from the traditional values Alliance, he'll just say whatever. She's telling the truth because she actually got it from the vice president's wife for Mrs. Russell. Mm -hmm. We haven't really heard about the Vice President's wife at all before this episode, but before this scene, she does get name-checked earlier in this episode in, in kind of a more benign way that just kind of passes a little bit quickly i want you on the surgery channel in women's health magazines the today show mrs russell's approval ratings bump considerably when she did her cooking segment her chili was so good they're having her back for christmas and for a second i thought wait who's mrs russell like the words hadn't been mentioned before and so i had to stop and think who she was referring to yeah i
0: don't think i even processed that
1: yeah, yeah. it goes and it goes by quickly because really at that moment it's all about abby But there's actually a lot of detail in that little snippet. For one, it's evidence that the vice president's wife is out there doing media appearances. And there's enough of an awareness of her in the public's eye that there's actual polling data on her popularity. It's this little nod that she is part of the machine of the presidential election to come. And so it actually serves as a little bit of foreshadowing for later, the the final reveal of what kind of effect she can have on the actions of the white house ah
0: very good good ear you're absolutely right because we sort of lose track we only tangentially get an occasional mention of the race
1: right but that is what's behind all of this but yeah i love that this off-screen character who we've never heard before is really the person who who kind of tips the dominoes sure will's the one who put together the list but it, it's really the vice president's wife who we've yet to meet who's the prime mover on all of this the uh prime moo over on this very good okay let's talk about the other main part of the episode which you you alluded to which is um the storyline that josh is involved in where he's trying to convince his friend hayden to stay on as a judicial nominee whose whose nomination is currently blocked
0: yes and of course eric hayden played by michael gaston or gaston or gaston if you're a disney fan (laughs) Uh, But I thought he is another one of those, he's obviously a very good actor, he's done quite a lot, and I don't know why I loved him in this episode. He just made a strong impression on me in the role.
1: Who does Congress think they are? No one says no
0: to Gaston. (laughs) You love musicals. Just admit it.
1: Every f***ing reference is a musical. No one's slick as Gaston. No one's quick as Gaston. No one's suited to be on the court like Gaston. <laughs> there we go. Mm-hmm. But
0: he was also in uh, Madame Secretary. He's currently in The Man in the High Castle. He's a rather accomplished actor, and I, I really like him in this role.
1: I had a suspicion. Okay, the decision that Hayden is trying to make is whether or not he stays with this fight, waiting to see if he can get appointed to the Sixth Circuit, or if he takes this job that he's been offered to be dean of the Georgetown Law School, which is Mm -hmm. not a bad title. And Josh wants him to hold on. We find out that there are a ton of judicial nominations that have been held up at this point, a lot of vacancies.
0: I like that Alexa Young has Hayden mention that he's got a wife and kids and a mortgage. You know, I always think of these people who are up for these potential circuit court judgeships or the Supreme Court as so prominent and probably fine financially. You kind of forget that, you know, while this yeah. confirmation process is being held up, the guy's got a life to lead and right. money he needs to earn and not necessarily, these people aren't necessarily, you know, well to do. Right? They're, they're in a bind as they sit there for uh, months and months.
1: Yeah. And the prestige of the job, Even the the history-making aspect of the job is only one element to consider. The other is feeding your family. Right. I had a suspicion that maybe Hayden was based on Elena Kagan. Mm, Why is that? So Elena Kagan was a law scholar. She was at Chicago, and then she worked in the White House alongside You know several of the people who advised on this show and then in 1999 she was nominated to serve as a judge on the dc circuit court of appeals which is one of the big ones but her nomination was one of the ones that the senate judiciary committee decided not to bring forward for a hearing in the clinton administration so it expired when congress adjourned in fall of 2000 which is one of the you know the aspects here hayden might only get to serve for nine months as a recess appointee. As a recess appointee, yeah. What's so cool is I had that feeling that maybe that, that might be the case. I know that Eli Addy and Ronald Klein, you know, they're friends with Elena Kagan. And then Elena Kagan went on to become the dean of Harvard Law School ah. after her term expired. So I asked Eli and he said, yeah, for sure it was. Oh, interesting. He said, as I recall, her nomination had stalled and she got sick of waiting and took a job at Harvard Law School. But She had been a colleague of his at the White House and she's actually chimed in on legal storylines for the West Wing here and there. She's, she's advised a lot. That's interesting. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. One of my favorite moments is when uh, Donna and Josh are speaking and, and she says, what about getting judges on the Supreme Court? And he says, you see, this is the problem. It's all about the Supreme Court. Nine guys getting all the ink. And then Donna says, actually, she actually is him. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. Correctly, it's seven guys and two highly qualified female jurists. But Josh says,
3: Supreme Court sees 80 cases a year. These guys see close to 20,000. Circuit courts make 99% of judge-made law.
1: And that detail does feel incredibly relevant to today. Joining us now is Jason Zengerle. He wrote a piece, How the Trump Administration is Remaking the Courts for the New York Times Magazine. Jason, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Oh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: What did you think of the Sixth Circuit plot line in this episode?
3: It made me look at the calendar and realize how old this story is. Um, I think the episode would have been in the early aughts. And the discussion of the way uh, Senate Republicans were holding open these uh, judgeships just made me realize, you know, this has been going on for a long time. I mean, I think, you know, it, it went to extremes during uh, the Obama administration, but it clearly was happening before. And I think it just made me realize that this has been happening for a while.
1: What were the the extremes in the Obama administration?
3: Well, I mean, obviously, the, the biggest extreme was the Merrick Garland hmm. Seat. I mean, holding open a yeah, Supreme
1: Court Yeah, but was seat. there stuff uh, at the lower courts as well?
3: Yeah, and especially at the appellate court level, you know, the Senate Republicans, Mitch McConnell, really held the line with his caucus about denying Obama the opportunity to fill these judgeships. You know, at first, when they were in the minority, they used the blue slip to uh, hold them open. The blue slip is a Senate procedure that allows a home state senator to basically deny a hearing for a judge nominated from his or her state. So Republicans used that initially. They used the filibuster. and They just basically used every procedural move or measure at their disposal to stop Obama from filling these judgeships when they were in the minority. And then once they became the majority, they could just use majority vote to stop it. I think there were instances where the Obama administration, they really tried to sort of work out compromises with these Republican senators or sort of reached out to them and tried to find nominees who would be agreeable to them. And uh, the Republicans kind of played a more absolute game and just no one would be agreeable. So they just kind of refused.
1: (laughs) Do you think that the Bartlett administration in in this episode feels like a precursor to what the Obama administration's strategy was?
3: Yeah, except for the recess appointments part. <laughs> they didn't they didn't you know in, in the episode, I guess they ultimately settle on this idea that they're gonna you know appoint these judges with a recess appointment which allows them to sit for nine months. The appointments are only gonna last for nine months and we gotta nominate these guys again and we're back to square one. It's not square one. We increase public awareness. we re-examine the process. We have our own little whiskey rebellion on the floor of the Senate. In response to which we circulate a complete bio of every one of our new judges and let the country decide who's in the right. I have to be honest, I actually don't know where that storyline goes after this episode. (laughs) Maybe it doesn't work. The Obama administration was much less willing to pick a fight, and I think that's something that You know, Democrats today are kind of wringing their hands about and having some sort of Monday morning quarterbacking regrets. But, you know, for the most part, the Obama administration just didn't want to fight the Republicans on this. And and I think the place where you see that more than anything was the Merrick Garland nomination. I mean, they Obama, he tried to sort of outreasonable the Republicans in the Senate, and that that turned into a big mistake. But, you know, Garland was—he picked Garland because he thought he would be—there was no way Republicans could object to him. You know, he was older. He was very moderate. And still, Republicans rejected him. I think there's some Democrats who feel like if Obama had picked a younger judge, you know, a more liberal judge, maybe one who wasn't a white man, that that could have served as you know a rallying cry during the presidential campaign. The way Trump was able to use the open Supreme Court seat as a rallying cry for conservative voters.
0: And could President Obama indeed have made a recess appointment with Merrick Garland, or would that have been considered unconstitutional?
3: Well, I guess I think it would have wound up in court, right? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine the Obama administration having the stomach to do that to begin with. And I also mm-hmm. would wonder about just the political uh, consequences of such a move. I think that, you know, it, that, that, that was not on the table. <laughs> I think picking a more liberal, younger, um, you know, non-white potential Supreme Court justice was probably more in the realm of possibility. I think a recess appointment would not have been something that they would even consider.
1: There's a moment in the episode where Josh says, the Supreme Court, that's where all the ink goes. But your piece for the New York Times Magazine really is about how the lower courts are a huge part of the political machinery. Has that always been the case, that administrations have seen filling those seats as political moves, ways of exerting their power?
3: Yes and no. I think Republicans have actually been more cognizant of that than Democrats. I think Republicans have kind of kept their eyes on the ball a little bit more with these appellate courts than Democrats have. I and mean, I think Republicans have been a little bit, they've been more focused on courts than Democrats have in general. But I I do think that, you know, that is carried over to these appellate courts. And, you know, I think, especially as the Supreme Court has become, uh, as the caseload has shrunk, Uh, in the Supreme Court over time, I think these appellate courts have become more important. There are all sorts of cases that never make it to the Supreme Court. And so the decision made by these appellate courts is the law of the land. And then number two, they really do serve as kind of the proving ground and the farm team for eventual Supreme Court picks.
1: And at this point, Trump is appointing judges at a faster rate, certainly than Obama. Is it faster than any other president?
3: Yeah, at the appellate court level, yeah. He's i mean—he's going to get over 30 probably by the end of this year, which will be a record for a president's first two years. Part of it is he has the vacancies. The story of the Obama administration was Republicans keeping these judgeships open. So Trump has been able, you know, he's had all these empty spaces to put these judges in. But then, you know, on top of that, he's nominating a ton of them. And the Senate is moving extremely fast to confirm them. I mean, the same way you're seeing the Senate trying to move so quickly to get Kavanaugh in there, they've moved even faster on some of these appellate court nominees.
0: As a way, in a sense, to embed Trumpism, no matter how long we might have Trump, Trumpism is going to be baked into the system because of these
3: judges. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's pretty interesting because, you know, it's not even Trumpism per se, right? I mean, this is, you know, it's originalism and textualism. It's a very specific judicial philosophy that I don't think Donald Trump probably knows or cares much about. Like, these are all judges who Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or any sort of mainstream Republican would have been trying to put on the bench. My guess is they might not have had as much success as Trump has had. I mean, you know, Trump has basically subcontracted this out to the Federal Society, which is this, you know, very influential conservative legal group, which has had more influence on Trump than basically any other president, which is kind of counterintuitive because Trump had no interest in the Federal Society before he, you know, started running for president. Whereas Mm -hmm. other, other Republicans, you know, they actually sort of understand what the federal society is they probably are like minded the federal society has been able to kind of basically just take this portfolio from trump and go crazy with it you know getting like every one of their uh, their choices through and i mean the thing that i think is interesting is you know because trump doesn't actually have sort of a personal or intellectual belief in this stuff the clock's kind of running on these people who favor these kind of judges cuz right now trump is you know quite happy to turn it over to them but you know as soon as say one of these judges who he appoints rules in a way that Trump personally dislikes, or as soon as a nomination blows up or it embarrasses Trump in some way, I don't think Trump is going to be beholden to these people. And, you know, my guess is he'll stop taking their advice on who to appoint to the bench. So I feel like in a lot of ways they're trying to get as many of these people on the bench either before Trump is gone or before Trump changes his mind and decides to take his advice on judgeships from someone else. Stack the deck. Yeah, yeah.
1: What about someone like Brett Talley? That didn't count as uh, an embarrassment enough for Trump that uh, that he would change strategies? Was that not part of the Federalist Society's kind of overall influence? Talley is the lawyer who was uh, rated not qualified by the by the American Bar Association.
3: Yeah, and and actually I think but I think the bigger problem for Tally was that in addition to being rated not qualified, he was also they found some old posts of his on a mm-hmm. University of Alabama football board that seemed to be defending the honor of the early KKK the clan, yeah. Yeah, and then also he was a ghost hunter. I mean, he was an unusual guy. Um,
0: <laughs> I like the ghost hunter just personally.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that was a <laughs> no, plus was for a Josh. character. Yeah. <laughs> So as I understand it, though, Tally was actually not a Trump pick. Um, he wasn't a White House pick. He was actually uh, picked from the Hill. So that one, yeah, it didn't. It probably didn't embarrass him for specific reasons. Also, you know, was a district court judge. It wasn't an appellate court judge. The one that recently. Uh, The guy in the Ninth Circuit from Oregon, whose name I'm now forgetting, he got to a vote on the floor. And then right before they were going to vote, um, Tim Scott came out against him, the Republican senator from South Carolina, because of some writings this guy had done at Stanford that were potentially racist. That was probably a little bit more of an embarrassment for Trump.
1: Mm, That was Ryan Bounds?
3: Yes, Ryan Bounds. Um, That one, yeah. But again, you know, these don't sort of rise to the level. The Kavanaugh one, that'll be really interesting to see if Kavanaugh winds up not getting through. It'll be interesting to see how Trump processes that and what his reaction is to that.
1: Let me go back to the Sixth Circuit here. The Sixth Circuit is where Josh's friend Hayden is supposed to be headed. Some of the circuits have sort of reputations for being more liberal skewing or being more conservative skewing, right? Because of the makeup of the the judges on the bench there in those places? Yeah. And in your article, you, you mentioned that the Sixth and the Seventh Circuit have actually flipped from more liberal to more conservative skewing.
3: So this this actually became a big bone of contention with my article. Um, it's kind of funny you bring this up because if you look at the Sixth Circuit right now, it has more Republican-appointed judges than Democrat-appointed judges. Mm-hmm. And so there were people, you know, close followers of this stuff who raised like a reasonable objection to my piece and said the Sixth Circuit is already the Sixth Circuit did not flip under Trump. It already had a majority of Republican-appointed judges. Mm-hmm. Trump supporters, you know, people in sort of the conservative legal movement who are really cheering on. Trump. Trump, they believe that Trump has flipped the Sixth Circuit because even the Republican appointed judges who are on the Sixth Circuit are not sufficiently conservative in their mind. Yeah. Is there something just
1: crazy that's so taken for granted, but can you just stop and talk about how crazy it is that judgeships are even political by nature? I mean, the Principle of it is that they should just be reviewing cases on their merits, right? Is it a modern kind of conception that the judiciary should even be sort of a politically deterministic role?
3: Well, you have a lot of there was a real backlash to the Warren Court and the Burger Court among conservatives. You know, I I think basically presidents used to pick judges i mean kind of on ideology but not more just on kind of basic competence a lot of times it was on friendship it was on you know who had been a campaign supporter But, you know, conservatives, I think, sort of started to realize that they perceive law schools as, you know, sort of inherently liberal. And so therefore, even if Democratic presidents were picking judges without sort of thinking about what their ideology would be, conservatives believe they were picking judges who had a liberal bias. And that's how you got all these civil rights rulings and the like. So then beginning in, you know, the 70s and then, you know, when Reagan becomes president in the 80s, you had a real effort among conservatives to find a president who was going to be willing to pick you know conservative justices um and it, and it became sort of a more explicitly political enterprise and i think republicans it's still more explicitly political than democrats i mean i think you could argue about what the outcomes are but i think republicans tend to sort of be more out in the open about how there's an ideological test but yeah i mean there is something a little crazy about it and it's and it's just become more just more pronounced as time has gone by, especially with Supreme Court. We're gonna enter into an era where if a president doesn't have a majority in the Senate from his or her same party, they're just not gonna get a Supreme Court justice appointed. The seat's gonna just sit open. What happened with Garland is gonna happen, I think, going forward, if there are different parties in control of the Senate and and the White House. Um, And and that's a new development.
0: It seems like that's what the GOP does well, is approach the judiciary as a hedge against losing power in the executive and legislative branches.
3: That's definitely what they're doing right now. You saw that during the Obama years, and you see it with the particular judicial philosophy that they now subscribe to. There was a debate among originalists and textualists about how activist or engaged is the term they use these judges should be. Mm -hmm and i think the ones who favor engagement now are really in the majority and that means you know they're willing to overturn democratically passed legislation i mean in the past the idea was judicial restraint among conservatives you know judges should hesitate to overturn democratically enacted laws now i think they're more willing to overturn these laws and that is i think a hedge against where congress is going and things like that
1: are you a West Wing fan? Have you Had you ever seen this episode before?
3: I had not seen this episode. Um, I'm one of those people who I don't think I ever like kind of watched the West Wing sort of regularly, like every week. But I, I have over the course of however many years it's now been, I've seen so many episodes so many times at various points. Like I knew who every character was. I, I did forget, Josh, that you were the vice president's chief of staff and it took me a while to figure out what was going on there. And it's episode, taken me years to forget that myself. <laughs> but I knew, yeah, I knew who everybody was. So I was I was pretty familiar with uh with the plot lines. It's a funny feeling to sort of watch this portrayal of a White House that is run so kind of competently <laughs> and with like <laughs> you well know, qualified professionals and people whose, you know, hearts seem to be in the right place. It's a strange feeling to see that right now. Mm-hmm. Nostalgia. Yeah, yeah.
1: Jason, what is your beat regularly?
3: Um, I write about politics and I don't, often write about the courts. This just happened to be the assignment. Um, Actually, I mean, the original idea for this story when I started it was, we wanted to focus on these appeals courts because the idea was, you know, you might've heard of Neil Gorsuch, but actually it's all these appellate court judges that are really kind of in some ways more important. By the time the story came out, Kennedy had retired and, you know, Kavanaugh had been nominated and you couldn't really make the argument that these appeals court judges are more important than two Supreme Court justices (laughs) that Trump had So we had to to make a few adjustments. Um, on that score but yeah for the most part i just write about politics
1: that's really interesting because that's exactly what happens in this episode we spend the whole episode you know yes. talking about about the, the validity of the recess appointment and you know whether hayden should stick with it and then by the end a supreme court justice has died and the whole thing just has to be put on hold
3: yeah no it totally reminded Which, me right? of like the, the conversation between leo and josh reminded me of the conversation with my editor when kennedy retired <laughs> it was just like oh crap <laughs> we gotta <laughs> change this
1: Jason, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome.
3: Oh, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. And now we're going to take a quick break.
1: The West Wing Weekly is brought to you by Squarespace.
0: They are the engine behind our website.
1: It's true. And they could be the engine behind your website too, for whatever you need, whether it's for your business or your art or some other pursuit that you want to put out there in the world
0: that's right if you've ever thought about having an online presence squarespace will make it fun and easy to realize your dream
1: they make it easy by giving you beautiful templates that are created by world-class designers so even if you don't know anything about web design you can make a website that looks professional and it's actually easy to use behind the scenes
0: that's right and they've got things like free and secure hosting built-in seo that's search engine optimization there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And there's 24 7 award winning customer support.
1: So go ahead and make your website. There's no harm in trying because right now you can actually get a free trial by going to squarespace.com slash Westwing. And then when you're ready to launch, if you use the offer code Westwing, you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain.
0: That's squarespace.com slash Westwing. And now back to the show.
1: You know who I felt differently about after this episode? Tell me, Rena. Hmm. Tell me why. One, she is doing a great job as Toby's research assistant. That's undeniable, and she's the one who catches so many of the details. But the fourteen bucks kept bugging me, so I checked Layton's list against our internal NIH-generated, very unpublic list, and and they're the same. On top of that, there's that little moment between Rena and Toby where she tells him that she has a daughter.
0: Yeah, I, I was just going to add that if you didn't get
1: to it. I love that moment. I love everything about it, and it warmed me to Rena that much more. Just, just finding that out, like knowing what her job is and what she puts up with.
0: I agree. In both the writing and the performance, in just a few lines, suddenly we learn a lot more, both about Rena and about her relationship with Toby. The fact yeah. that Toby doesn't know, you know, you, you know—you can imagine the guy's never asked her a personal question. Right. But he does stop to say, wait, you have a kid? And there's something very sweet in Melissa Marsala's uh, response.
1: Yeah, I have a little girl.
0: She says it with just a, you, you get what that means to her, yeah. what her life is all about. Away from work, it's uh, it's very well done.
1: Yeah, it it totally makes up for the tell arena of that moment. Otherwise, you know, she's really now the the one who's asking. She says, "Why should we be studying female sex workers at truck stops?" Allowing Toby the chance to say,
3: "Well, oh, what's the purpose of the study? To try to improve and protect the public's health. Scientists have a responsibility to study whatever they think will lead them to answers."
1: And at first, I was kind of like, "Okay, here we go." And then they completely disarmed me with that reveal. And I also like their dynamic throughout as toby says please don't say you rock hey don't say shizzle the shizzle part did confuse me a little bit which is maybe you're running out of shizzle because i mean as far as i can
0: tell i think it's acceptable as a synonym for like juice
1: is it is it though
0: you don't like it i accepted it
1: i think it's really just a synonym for well
0: i i accepted it in context
1: (laughs) and toby says, please don't say shizzle i also wanted to say to the west wing writers please don't write a character saying shizzle I
0: noticed a phenomenon, by the way. Uh, For some reason, I did what I rarely do. Oh, I was watching on my laptop, and I did some rewinding to rewatch moments. And everybody sounds strange when you listen in reverse. Richard sounds exactly the same. backwards or forwards. Richard's intonations, his cadence, everything's the same. You can't make out the words exactly, but everything else sounds exactly the same as Richard. (laughs) That's great. I don't know what that says.
1: (laughs) I think that uh, there are a couple of things that bugged me in this episode. And we've talked about this a little bit, but I don't appreciate it when... The show is trying to tell me that something is funny, nor when they tell me that someone is handsome. And again, both those things happen again in this episode. All these Big Bird CJ jokes.
0: Woofta. Yeah. They are rough. And I feel like I can see myself doing my best (laughs) as I have to come in the room and say, what do CJ and Big Bird have in
1: common? This will be fun because no one's ever made a joke about me and Big Bird before.
0: Your heads are in Ohio and your feet are in Florida. That isn't a joke. I can see, like, I'm, well, this has been written for me, so I have to say this, but I can almost see in my face, like, I don't think this is funny. It doesn't even track. It's the same as saying, what's, you know, what's the same about CJ and Big Bird? They're both tall, right? I mean, that's not a joke. That's just a statement.
1: <laughs> this one, but at least they're both tall, makes sense.
0: Right. This one, right, doesn't even make sense. Their head is in Ohio and their feet are in Florida. And then even worse is uh, CJ and Charlie have a rat-a-tat-tat back and forth. of Incredibly lame tall yeah. jokes.
1: That one is worse. Again, once I finished the episode, I felt differently about certain scenes. Like this one, this incredibly lame exchange from Will. At first, I thought, Will kind of seems like a dummy here. I was surprised by how this once very sharp guy seemed just like a moron in this moment. <laughs> But, but then uh, I realized he's just covering. He's, what's actually on his mind is this list and Leighton, and he's trying to f- find some intel, and he's playing it nonchalantly and failing. And now I, I actually like how terrible that joke is because um, it's maybe some insight as to how panicked he is
0: i would like to believe that he could come up with a better joke to cover (laughs) even even (laughs) while stressed even given the circumstances yes
1: i'd like to think so too but maybe maybe not but yeah then the the charlie cj one is i don't know charlie cj and big bird are so tall that what when you do cartwheels we kick god in the chin when we trip on a rock we hit our heads on the moon when we do push-ups we burn our backs on the sun and you meet the tall street journal go away
0: (laughs) it's literally i don't like about. I don't know, when do people start talking? At whatever age people start talking, if they immediately, you're like, give me some tall jokes. It would be like, Dave, if
1: you push up, you get burnt by the sun. <laughs> when we trip on a rock, we hit our heads on the moon. When, we, when you do cartwheels, we kick God in the chin. That is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And you read the Tall Street Journal. Oof. Uh, I'll be honest. By the time we got
0: through that, I was finally—I was like, "Ba boom!" <laughs>
1: Comparatively,
0: that was freaking Noel Coward, Oscar Wilde's in the room, Ooh.
1: And in a much lesser way, being told that again—I'm sorry to Brian Kerwin, but you know, I bristle a little at the first lady saying,
0: "You have a handsome man in your doorway."
1: There's been so much buildup around it it's just a matter of expectations at this point. You can't, I can't imagine what actor they could have there that would live up to that. I mean, this happened with CJ's Argentinian lettuce suitor.
0: In- indeed, you're right. I'm glad we're finally here to the Ben-CJ-C story, because I, that really didn't work for me. Mm. That to me just was a sitcom plot line that doesn't quite work in this context and on top of it you're going to do a sitcom plot line it doesn't pay off comically she comes in and she says to him
1: i'm sorry ben i can't have lunch and i don't have a lot of time but you did the dance you paid your dues i want you to know that i'm in
0: and then gives him the most cringeworthy screen kiss in the history of cinema
1: yeah. have you seen manhattan
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh good point
1: why oh, was so bad
0: without the kiss I mean, it's meant to be, I think, because he's because not... Because he's not expecting it? On the same wavelength or expecting it. Okay. So, I mean, it's appropriate to the moment. But I don't buy that CJ, who's been putting this guy off for all this time, and I mean, now has this backstory with him, all of a sudden, without any discussion or anything, is just like, you know what? Yeah, let's do this. Like, just, People don't act that way. They act that way occasionally in rom-coms and in sitcoms. But those are weirdly heightened comic scenarios where you, you know, if it's written well and done well, you can kind of accept it, but it doesn't work in the West Wing.
1: I thought just the mechanics of having Ben kind of flit in and out of the White House, including areas with press and staff, seemed unprofessional to the level of unrealistic. And I thought, can't you just stick to what everybody else does, which is date relatives of your bosses, like Sam and Charlie, or just right. or just flirt with whoever comes in for a meeting. <laughs> do what Josh does and flirt with whoever is going to walk into your office.
0: There you go. Exactly.
1: At the very least, Danny, you know, at least he worked there. That's true. Here sure she has to get him a pass to ignore him. Yeah, I have or... to get you a
0: pass just to do this inappropriate thing at work. <laughs> exactly.
1: Am I wrong? Did that storyline work for you? No, I, I, I agree. And I also, uh, this is neither Danny nor is it Simon Donovan in terms of the stakes.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Again, no offense to Brian Kerwin. He hasn't been given enough real estate to establish anything. We've been told, just like we're told that he's super handsome and charming and Carol thinks he's a doll and Dr. Bartlett thinks he's cute. and We've been told that they have a steamy backstory, but we haven't seen anything that would lead us up to this moment that we do see.
1: We have, certainly haven't seen any indication of chemistry. Most of the time we've, we've heard from him, it's been CJ avoiding talking to him. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I did appreciate just now you called the First Lady Dr. Bartlett, because I can never forget what she said. I always think of the scene when she says...
2: When did I stop being Dr. Bartlett? When in the campaign did I decide that women were going to like me more if I called myself Mrs. When did I decide that women were that stupid?
1: And I always think, you know, there's so much importance on the President Bartlett of it all. And she, these are her wishes. She is a doctor. Why can't she be Dr. Bartlett? Every time since that ep- seeing that episode, whenever people huh. refer to her as Mrs. Bartlett, I feel a twinge of offense on her part. Sure. Absolutely. And so I was really pleased when uh, Elmo referred to her by her actual proper title
0: by the way i'm sorry i think elmo killed in this episode (laughs) it was actually his stuff is hilarious (laughs) yeah asking for the medical license asking for the medical license incredibly hilarious yep (laughs) it was good there are a couple moments i I know we discussed this when our heroes don't seem to understand that these are puppets yes (laughs) right I think it's Rosita who compliments Donna's hair, and Donna responds as if she's on face value talking to a puppet. And then uh, I love the image of Big Bird sitting next to CJ and her getting up, but that was a prolonged interaction that maybe we didn't need.
1: (laughs) Uh, It's fine. I'll take it all for Mrs. Dr. Abby, First Lady Doctor, (laughs) which is how I'm going to refer to her from now on. It's pretty funny. And I remember uh, I
0: brought my daughter to the set. If I can dig up the pictures, uh, she got to hang out with the Muppets, which was way cool. Yeah. That is uh, pretty awesome. Post a picture. Yeah. Isabel came to the set. I was like, for once, because prior to this moment and subsequent to this moment, my (laughs) children have absolutely no use for my career. Other than one episode of iCarly, which they also enjoyed, it was uh, visiting the set of the West Wing. For my daughter and meeting the muppets it's pretty good they couldn't have been nicer the performers
1: did she get to interact with the with the actual muppet characters
0: yes indeed she did that's
1: pretty great you mentioned the sort of confusion about the career suicide of will's move Mm -hmm. and i don't understand why what will did was so terrible he is not the one who leaked the list he put something together
0: although i guess in the end he's saying you know what he is saying is the buck stops with me having set it into motion
1: I guess so. I still don't see why. I mean, I appreciate him taking responsibility for it in that way, and that he, was, he maybe he should have kept it under lock and key better or something like that. I think his feeling was that if
0: he took ultimate responsibility for it, there was at least an outside chance that the episode would end with a shot of him. <laughs> and it worked. His little plan worked.
1: Yeah. But then he goes to confront the vice president about it. Mm-hmm. At the end, and I think this is a bit of a wake-up call. I think Will has been pretty clear-eyed about much regarding his boss and what he's able to accomplish there through that office. You know, what the character of of the guy, you know, Will has been kind of unromantic about his boss in a way that a lot of the Bartlett administration staffers are not. You know, they're really sipping the Kool-Aid there. Absolutely. But still, I think this moment in this episode really clears some cobwebs for Will.
0: You're going to need to tell the president, sir. Am I? It's going to come out, sir. The list is all over town.
3: Maybe that's not so bad. It wasn't my plan, but might be a happy accident. Just a thing we need to put a little distance between us and them.
1: Basically, he's taken a moment that makes Will look really bad, especially to his friends over in the West Wing, and they're going to capitalize on it. And the scene ends with Will saying, Thank you, Mr. Vice President. And using the title, everything in that way is, I I feel like this is Will Bailey's. Wow, you are an ass. You're a monster.
0: Yeah. Although I have to say, I'm not sure I felt like the moment was earned. I don't see the horrible, horrible thing that Russell has done. I mean, he's playing, you know, down and dirty politics. But again, I don't, the whole reveal of Ellie working in that lab isn't, doesn't hit me. The way i think it's meant to
1: what i thought was more of the betrayal of will that will had done this research research right it was not meant to get out exactly and it was not meant to get out and the vice president completely betrayed his intentions and he doesn't give a damn
0: yeah oh it's 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 absolutely like you know i'm the boss moment yeah Uh, you know that'll be all i'll do what i want
1: but you don't find that part villainous at all
0: i don't know i guess i think it's because i still feel like there's something missing from the central plot line that i can't quite wrap my mind around that the whole gestalt of it doesn't seem as high stakes as we're meant to take it Mm,
1: okay well then then as the episode ends ellie you know has been convinced we can get back to this but she's been convinced and will looks like he's taking in you know this moment with the vice president and he's got some reckoning to do toby had said to him i'll take you at your word this was a mistake
3: whatever the hell else you want to do about it's your own business
1: this is will contemplating what he is going to do about it. Yeah, that's right. Here's, I
0: think, ultimately what's sticking in my craw about this whole situation, is that I think it's a misplay on the part of Bartlett and all his staffers for it to have been a secret in the first place that Ellie works where she does.
1: Hmm. Even with the whiff of nepotism that that might carry?
0: Because of the whiff of nepotism. Mm. It seems stupid not to have gotten ahead of something that if you're open about and answer questions about you could probably dispel the sense of impropriety, but that if you don't say anything about, and it's a big secret, and who leaked it, and oh my god, it got out, then of course, yeah, it does sound like, whoa, there's some secret here. Huh. What were you hiding? It seems like amateur politics on the part of the Bartlett administration to me.
1: You're making me think of the famous line, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up.
0: It's the cover-up. There you go, exactly. And
1: it feels like there's been a cover-up by keeping it secret. Right, and
0: then I, here's another thing that I find odd, which is that it's a little bit like the boy is Ben handsome. and what was the other thing? Boy is this funny?
1: Yeah, these uh, big bird jokes are hilarious.
0: Yes, there's a there's a a little bit of I think a slightly clunky setup, like boy is President Bartlett going to be furious because if it has to do with his kids, I don't want to tell him, you tell him. Oh right. my god! And then we get a screaming Bartlett. We hear him from outside the Oval, and then we get in there and. Martin is absolutely quaking with anger, and then when he finally has a private moment with Ellie, he's like, "You got to do the right thing. You got to go out there. You got to make a statement." It's just, it's such a one eighty. I'm not saying it's impossible. You can be furious, and then and, and, you know when you have a moment you know, realize, hey, you're in this position and, and you got to do what you got to do. But it felt like such a turnaround. He's so absolutely infuriated at the thought that she would ever be involved or she would be exposed to anything. She's just somebody trying to do her work. And then they get a moment and he's basically like, hey, you got to get out there. You got to get ahead of this. And she's like, I don't like to give a book report. He's like, well, you still have to do it. It's just, it was such a turnaround. I found it a little bit jarring.
1: I mean, he's still trying to appeal to the part of her that cares about science, saying that this is also part of the job. He's not trying to convince her to be a politician, the way she says that, you know, Zoe's able to do this naturally, and and Liz, uh, they're able to do this naturally.
3: If you believe in what you're doing, you have to speak up.
1: Yes,
0: yes, no, and I get that message. It's just, to me, it's a real turnaround from wanting to protect her. Like, you know, they didn't choose this the glare of public scrutiny, and she's just a doctor who wants to sit in a room and go over her data. And and he's like, what I really think I ought to do is give a press conference. I don't, it's just, it's odd to me. And I feel like he has to do a little bit more reflective listening, because he's not really getting his daughter who's trying to say to him, I don't want to do
1: this. Yeah. It is actually really funny, too, that, uh, He really doesn't listen to the, the title of the episode is Epor si Muove. And as they discuss in this scene, it's this apocryphal story about Galileo being forced to recant his theory that the earth moves around the sun. And then after he recants it, under his breath, he says, it
3: still moves.
1: (laughs) I know. Yeah. And as Ellie rightly points out, she says, it's
3: apocryphal, dad, a story for tourists. If Galileo had muttered, it still moves after they made him recant his life's work. They would have killed him on the spot. And I don't know why.
1: And she's getting worked up. But then later on in the... Same conversation, the president acts like it's fact. he says when Galileo said a e por si miove it meant that he would continue no matter what to study in public
0: I get no- I just told you it, it didn't it did happen, happen. <laughs> 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 I am going to start using that though because I really like to mutter things and I, uh, that completely abrogate if that's the correct word what I just said like you know apologizing and then muttering you kind of started it. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of just now start muttering emperor love. <laughs> and yet it moved.
1: Um the nice thing about it is that uh even if people hear what you're muttering they won't understand it. Right, exactly.
0: I will say while she's not necessarily a master of tall jokes, Alexa Young is very funny and you can see her uh Uh, you know, her years at Friends, and she has a great comic mind. And there were two wonderful moments, I thought, almost similar in that the punchline comes two beats after the other character in the conversation leaves frame, and both are written and performed particularly well. Great feats of timing. One, when Leo and CJ have a brief conversation, and we know that she's wearing a lot of cologne, and I oh, think uh, yeah. he refers to it, is that white shoulders. I can't remember, he refers to someone else having worn... His uh, piano white. teacher. Yeah, his piano teacher used to wear it, and then <laughs> CJ steps out of frame, and after a beat, he says, not that much, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I thought was really funny.
1: Although I did find that a little bit confusing, because I did not know that white shoulders was a perfume. Ah, and so, at first, when he said, are you wearing white shoulders? It's <laughs> <laughs> a clothing, a sartorial comment? I, I just, I had I, I, had to Google it to figure out what he was talking uh, about.
0: I, through context, I surmised that white shoulders was a cologne of some sort. And then the other moment that I think is really funny is President Bartlett asking whether you really need to fund a study of female sexual fantasy <laughs> and genital arousal. He steps out and beat later. Toby says, how can we afford not to? Also... Very funny,
1: if predictable. Uh, That one made me shake my head. Uh, Yeah, that one I (laughs) definitely saw. I definitely saw that one coming, which although I guess Toby hasn't really had that experience. Ooh,
0: boom. (laughs) (laughs) Is that too dirty? No, I think it's just the right amount of dirty. All right.
1: Another st- stylistic thing that I liked was when Toby and CJ first see Ellie in the episode. They, they see her on the news and she's running from the cameras because people have found out, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out how are they going to protect Ellie from this moment or how are they are going to get ready because people are going to find out. And then it turns out they're too late already and there's footage of her on the news. I love how everyone on screen around Ellie is dressed in dark clothing, but Ellie has this khaki coat on and and a green scarf and a blue hat, it just makes her stick out among all those sort of people rushing past, like she can't hide. Interesting.
0: That's funny. I noticed that scene. I just like the way that scene was shot and directed by Lou Wells. There's something about a sort of swirl of the information coming up and CJ's there and Dr. Bartlett is there. And Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden they pan up to the screen and it's happened. And I just liked the kinetic nature of that uh, moment in that scene.
1: Toby, at one point, says, Let's just make a statement and call it what it is. People who don't like you using your daughter
3: as a partisan piñata.
1: It made me think of Arctic radar. And and who's alliteration happy now, Toby? Mm. When Ellie first shows up, she she comes into the Oval Office and she apologizes. You know, the president is talking about how he wants to make threats against people who have outed his daughter or even looked into her personal life at all. She comes in and she says she's sorry you know, she's sorry that this happened. That's a perfect moment for the president to say, there's no need for you to apologize. You're right. This has only happened because I'm the president. Yes. But instead he says nothing. And I thought, you know, I know they have a strained relationship. This is kind of a gimme.
0: Yeah. That's something else I wrote down. I wanted to lay it off a little bit because I've been... Critical. But there are a couple more of those soap opera moments where nobody says anything for a beat too long because it's a TV show and nothing else has been written. And that Ellie scene too that I just praised also ends that way where Dr. Bartlett and CJ kind of look at each other and then look off and nothing happens. When really they would say, Oh my god, here you look, wow, they got her you know, they would just talk about what is
1: happening. The president at one point asks, Have you seen one of these grant applications? Which I think is a relevant point. You know, we've talked about this a little bit so far, but there is an elaborate NIH review process. It's not like, you know, when they say, oh, look at this study, as if it's this frivolous thing and someone awarded it, you know, in a dark room with no oversight. And then the president says explicitly, have you seen one of these grant applications? We're lucky Einstein didn't have to fill one out or God knows what E would equal. Then the answer is that E would equal Eric Murphy, as we learned in Entourage. Everyone must know that E makes vince good you and he really have something special Vin. he is a true friend Wow, <laughs> it's good okay thanks so much for joining us we hope you'll join us again next week when we'll be talking about the supremes mm, great group <laughs> we didn't actually talk about that yet but this episode sets us up for that next episode because at the very end we find out after all of josh's work on the hayden scenario, it has to be put on the back burner because a Supreme Court justice has passed away, setting us up for a nomination battle in the Supreme Court. And I'm hoping you'll join us next week so that you can finally hear a story about the Supreme Court.
0: Mm -hmm. The West Wing Weekly remains a proud member of Radiotopia, a collection of the finest podcasts in the land about which you can find more information at radiotopia.fm. Our podcast would just not be as good without the help of Zach McNeese, Margaret Miller, and Nick Song.
1: And if you want to let us know how you felt about this episode, you can leave a comment on the Westwingweekly.com or on our Facebook page or tweet at us.
0: That's right. And if you want to give us money for this free product that we've been giving you for years, you can go to the slash donate. That would be a nice thing to do. If each of you gave us five bucks, I would probably stop doing the podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did it work? I hope so. Okay. Okay.
3: What's next?
1: Before we let you go, we want to tell you about a new series from one of our fellow Radiotopia shows, the award-winning Kitchen Sisters. It's called The Keepers stories of activist
0: archivists, rogue librarians, curators, collectors, historians, protectors of the
1: free flow of information and ideas. Here's a little clip from one of the episodes from the Kitchen Sisters.
0: Every art form has their standards that they've placed in the canon. Mathematics, science, everybody has their greats, and somebody placed them there. People in visual art world say, hey, okay, this is what's going in the Louvre, this is it. And I think hip hop needs the same thing. This is
2: the archive.
0: Take a listen to The Keepers on the Kitchen Sisters present. It's available on your favorite podcast app and also at kitchensisters.org. Radiotopia.